0: President Vladimir Putin has described Russia's military objectives in Ukraine as "quote noble." And we are aware that today our officers are participating in the special operation in Donbas in Ukraine. There are many ways of thinking about history, and today I want to talk about Putin's sense of Russian history in comparison to an assumption about history that we often adopt in the West. I think. Ironically, it's our sense of history that's often misguided, and while Putin draws the wrong conclusions, his diagnosis of history, the model of history he's a product of, contains some surprising truths. Russia's difficult relationship with Europe, and its strained and unique relationship with its own identity, has a long history that goes back long before Putin, of course. But it's one I think he kind of believes in, and he's strengthening some of its elements. It has a rich tradition, as we'll see in philosophy, poetry, literature. in anti-rationalism, in Romanticism, but I think if we approach it carefully, it can teach us a lot about what our model of history often leaves out. We often adopt a model of history in Europe and America that historian Timothy Snyder calls the politics of inevitability. It's come in various forms, Hegel and Marx's dialectics, the idea of an ever-progressing linear historical path, what used to be called Whiggish history, Francis Fukuyama's The End of History, the argument that after the fall of the Soviet Union, the liberal model was the endpoint of historical progress. The assumption, often, is that progress is inevitable automatic, out of our human hands. Snyder says that it's a sense that the future is just more of the present, that the laws of progress are known, that there are no alternatives, and therefore nothing really to be done. If history is something that happens automatically, the politics of inevitability doesn't need anyone to do anything. It doesn't need ideas, it doesn't need action, it doesn't need fighting for or defending. History, like an escalator to freedom or a journey floating along a river, just is. Snyder continues that the politics of inevitability is the idea that there are no ideas. Those in its thrall deny that ideas matter, proving only that they are in the grip of a powerful one. The cliché of the politics of inevitability is that there are no alternatives. To accept this is to deny individual responsibility for seeing history and making change. Life becomes a sleepwalk to a pre-marked grave in a pre-purchased plot. The politics of inevitability gives the impression that once certain conditions are met, markets, property rights, freedom of speech, class consciousness, maybe. Freedom will then flourish automatically. This idea comes from many places. You could say it goes back to the biblical idea of millenarianism, that life on earth will get progressively worse until Christ returns and reigns over a golden age of a thousand years. But in its modern form, Its roots can be found in the idea of universality during the Enlightenment. There, again, it was interpreted in many ways. Voltaire believed in commerce expanding across the world, the global businessman. Leibniz believed in a universal language. Immanuel Kant thought that there was a universal model of morality that everyone should adopt. Hegel thought that the rational was real anything that happened was rational, and Marx believed in a universal concept of history moving forward scientifically. They believed that these things were inevitably true, independent of individual people. Author Pankaj Mishra writes that the rationalist idea of the enlightenment, which we're all a product of, presented quote a unified project of individual emancipation inaugurating the necessary and inevitable passage of humankind from tradition to modernity, immaturity to adulthood. What this meant was that when each nation, each country, each group or individual discovered, understood and accepted these universal truths, they would inevitably catch up with countries like England and France, who were already on the road of inexorable progress. And As Snyder argues, most of us in the West still tacitly accept this model. But on a parallel track, but still with roots in the enlightenment, runs a different model, a counter-model, a powerful critique, one that might be summarized as anti-rationalist or anti-universalist. The adherents of this model were people like Rousseau, Herder, Dostoevsky and Nietzsche, and they all criticise the idea of a universal history in different ways. Take just one part of an opposing view, the idea of a national identity. It's the idea that what defines a people's character, their essence, their spirit, is not reason, or enlightened individualism, or or rational individuals approaching the world with a cold logic, but a presupposed, integral national identity that grounds them in the first place. The sociologist Leah Greenfield has argued that, in fact, more than the escalator of expanding rationalism and freedom. Nationalism, national identity, is the most fundamental factor for understanding how the world we live in developed. And ironically, there's a logic to how national identities have developed. Imagine two countries, France and England during the enlightenment say, a few French thinkers argue that England is ahead of France, economically, spiritually, culturally. There are two main ways that France can respond. First, they could argue that England is on the right track, the one universal track forward, and emulate England in a bid to catch up. Alternatively, they could argue that while England is admittedly ahead, France is on a different track, a better track. They could argue that history has multiple tracks going in different directions, that there's no right or wrong track, and in fact, our track may be behind now, but once we develop it a little bit, it will be a superior track, a stronger and a faster track. In her now celebrated study, Greenfield argues that rather than the first universal model, comparison and resentment between developing nations has been a central force driving history. Resentment, she says, following Nietzsche, is a psychological state resulting from suppressed feelings of envy and hatred. She argues that nations have often interpreted the values of stronger nations as inappropriate for them. Wrong-headed, dangerous, and that this, in turn, has fueled the development of new internal national values. This has happened many times across history, of course, but most significantly, it happened during the period of modernization, during the Enlightenment, in Germany and Russia. Germany and Russia both came late to modernity, and they both looked westward for emulation and inward for inspiration. Throughout the 18th century, the Russian Tsars Peter the Great and Catherine the Great were both modernizers. They imported European ideas, strategies, political models, philosophies, and sciences while also purposefully fostering a new sense of Russian national identity. Peter the Great was the first monarch to refer to Russia as a fatherland. He built secular schools reformed many of Russia's institutions, imported European military tactics, and even enforced dress codes and etiquette, implementing attacks on beards to encourage a Western style. Many of Peter's officers travelled abroad and were introduced to European Enlightenment ideas. The poet and playwright Alexander Sumarakov wrote, You travellers who visited Paris and London, tell me. Do people there crunch their nuts while watching drama and when the performance is on the stage do they whip drunken and quarrelling coachmen, causing alarm to the floors, balconies and the whole theatre? Catherine the Great continued Peter's project, wanting to develop an enlightened Russian middle class. Catherine corresponded with Voltaire and met Diderot and paid D'Alembert to tutor her heir. She read Montesquieu and became known, along with Peter, as enlightened despots. Voltaire wrote that Russia, under Peter the Great, represented perhaps the greatest epoch in European life since the discovery of the New World, Catherine let the Philosophes publish their work in Russia when they were banned in France, she argued for equality under the law and she founded new schools and universities. But it was the French philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau who first became critical. He wrote that Peter wished to introduce at once Germans or Englishmen when he should have begun by making Russians he prevented his subjects from ever becoming what they might have been by persuading them that they were what they were not. It's in this way that a French tutor trains his pupils to shine for a moment in childhood and then to be forever a non-entity. Russia, intellectuals began having a strained relationship with their own sense of inferiority to the countries they were attempting to emulate. Greenfield argues that a feeling of inferiority can only last so long, and can quickly turn to resentment. She argues there are two common responses to any socio-political problems within a nation, shame and denial. She writes that shame is a rare reaction, given how singularly unpleasant this feeling is. It must be difficult to sustain it over a period of time of any length. Instead, many Russian intellectuals and politicians denied that they were further behind on the same singular path. For example, the playwright Denis Ivanovich Vonvozin asked, How can we remedy the two contradictory and most harmful prejudices? The first, that everything with us is awful, while in foreign lands, everything is good. The second, that in foreign lands, everything is awful, and with us, everything is good. The writer and father of Russian socialism, Alexander Herzen, wrote, like Janus or like a two-headed eagle, We were looking in different directions, while a single heart was beating in us. If the example set by Europe was to be rejected, Russians had to turn inwards and develop a Russian consciousness, a Russian spirit, a different path for Russia. And So the Russian language was developed through literature and poetry pride was fostered through the church Slavic that distinguished Eastern Orthodox Christianity from the Latin that was used in churches in Europe. National histories were written. Karamzin wrote, look, become equal to them, and then, if you can, surpass them. He continued, we had our own Charlemagne, Vladimir, our own Louis XI, Tsar Loan, our own Cromwell, Godunov, and in addition, such a ruler whose like is nowhere to be found, Peter the Great. Many intellectuals became critical of European standards, arguing that they shouldn't be emulated at all. After a trip to Paris, von Wissin wrote that one has to renounce all common sense and truth to say that there is not much of what is very good and deserving of imitation here. He said, A Frenchman would never forgive himself if he ever missed an opportunity to cheat. His god is money, d'Alembert's, Diderot's, in their own way, are as much charlatans as those I meet every day on the streets. All of them are cheating people for money, and the difference between a charlatan and a philosoph is only such that the latter to his greed adds an unparalleled vanity. He recommended instead that Russians feel pride in their own ways. He said, a cattle yard in the holdings of our honest gentry is much cleaner than streets in front of the very palaces of the French kings. Karamzin said, so let us honour and glorify our language which in its natural richness, almost without any alien admixture, flows like a proud, majestic river, roars, thunders, and suddenly, if need be, softens, murmurs, like a tender brook, and sweetly pours into one's soul, forming all the rhythms which may be contained in the falling and rising of a human voice. Of course, this phenomenon was not unique to Russia. In fact, it started in France with Rousseau, spread to Germany through the Romantics and to England as well, and it could be argued that it found its most distinctive form in Russian culture, but it can be found all over the world. Rousseau's emphasis on feeling, on emotion, on localism, on culture, and on the community was picked up by young discontented provincials in a not-yet-unified Germany that was lagging behind the rest of Europe. Mishra writes that German writers like Herder and Fichte simmered with resentment against a largely metropolitan civilization of slick movers and shakers that seemed to deny them a rooted and authentic existence. Romantics in Germany who felt resentful of French dominance and enlightenment rationalism responded by imagining an authentic German culture, a Volk. The German philosopher Johann Gottfried Herder criticized the rationalist philosophes, writing that, as a rule, the philosopher is never more of an ass than when he most confidently wishes to play God. When, with remarkable assurance, he pronounces on the perfection of the world, wholly convinced that everything moves just so, in a nice straight line, that every succeeding generation reaches perfection in a completely linear progression according to his ideals of virtue and happiness. Instead of following the philosophers, he asked Germans to spew out the ugly slime of the Seine. Speak German, oh you German. The discontented romantics throughout Europe responded to a modernity where, as Marx came to argue, everything that's solid melts into air. and Instead, they emphasised national myths and fables, religion, emotion, local culture, poetry and song, by romanticising local landscapes and emphasising the feelings of the downtrodden commoners trampled on by the swift steel boots of modern commerce, modern factories and modern assumptions. The romantics contrasted the cold calculations of reason and logic and reflection with the very real feelings and experience of everyday life, with the immeasurable, with the qualitative, with the spontaneous. In Russia, many turned to and emphasized collective ideas, ethnicity, blood and soil, the Russian soul, the unified people, pan-Slavism, The poet N. A. Lavov wrote that in foreign lands, all goes according to plan. Words are waited, steps are measured. There one sits, hour upon hour, and then begins to think. Having thought, one rests. Having rested, one smokes a pipe. Then, thoughtfully, goes to one's work. There are no songs, no pranks. Among us Orthodox, however, Work is like fire under our hands. Our speeches thunder, so that our sparks fly and the dust rises in columns. The common theme was unity, oneness, harmony. Since the Reformation, Western churches had moved towards the individual with their own singular relationship to God. They could read the Bible themselves. The Russian church instead emphasized sobernost. the idea of unity in multiplicity, in the Russian theologian Kumiakov's words. The church is one, he wrote, her unity follows of necessity from the unity of God, for the church is not a multitude of persons in their separate individuality, but a unity of the grace of God, living in the multitude of rational creatures, submitting themselves willingly to grace. This thinking applied to Russian communes too. A commune, wrote Sergei Aksakov, is a union of the people who have renounced their egoism, their individuality, and who express their common accord. This is an act of love. In the commune, the individual is not lost but renounces his exclusiveness in favour of the general accord. And there arises the noble phenomenon of a harmonious joint existence of rational beings. There arises a brotherhood, a commune, a triumph of human spirit. And before publishing his first major work, Notes from Underground, Fyodor Dostoevsky went on a tour of Europe. In London, he visited the International Exhibition at the Crystal Palace, a grand fair of world products and the greatest example of Western commerce, of individualism, of capitalism. He wrote, You become aware of this colossal idea. You sense that here something has been achieved, and here there is victory and triumph. You even begin vaguely to fear something, He then wondered, must you accept this as the final truth and forever hold your peace? It's all so solemn, triumphant and proud that you gasp for breath. Look at these hundreds of thousands, these millions of people humbly streaming here from all over the face of the earth. People come with a single thought, quietly, relentlessly, mutely thronging into this colossal palace and you feel that something final has taken place here, and something has come to an end. But then, in the rest of London, he saw people, quote, half-naked, savage, and hungry. He saw that liberty only existed for the rich, and he worried about, quote, a principle of isolation, of intense self-preservation, of personal gain, of self-determination, of the I, of opposing this eye to all nature and the rest of mankind as an independent, autonomous principle entirely equal and equivalent to all that exists outside itself. He returned to Russia with his mind made up. Russians shouldn't mindlessly import these European ideals. Nietzsche read the book Dostoevsky wrote next, Notes from Underground which drew from these experiences, and from it Nietzsche derived his own idea. It wasn't reason or divine truth that drove world history. It was resentment, Mark the date well. August 19th, 1991. Historians are likely to be analyzing the events of this day for generations to come. Military leaders and the Soviet secret police have taken control of the government, and now Vice President Gennady Yanayev is sitting in the president's seat. The hardliners say the country has become ungovernable because of perestroika. Tanks are moving into the capital, taking up positions near key government buildings. Outside the Russian parliament building, crowds began gathering early this morning to hear Russian President Boris Yeltsin call for a general strike to protest what he calls an unconstitutional coup. First, no one knows exactly what Putin is thinking, who he really admires, what his true motivations are. And I'm not saying he's consciously adopted this tradition or this model of history or this particular thinker. It's important, though, to understand the trend that he's in many ways a part of and is able to draw some kind of strength and Russian unity from. These anti-Western, anti-liberal, anti-rationalist, there are many ways to frame them, sentiments became even more fertile in Russia during the crisis of the 90s, when Russia was plunged into internal conflict, when gangs rose, when hyperinflation happened, when the provinces started to ignore Moscow or declared independence. In short, Russia was in chaos. In 2013, Putin said the question of finding and strengthening national identity is of a fundamental nature for Russia. Scholar Sergei Medvedev has written that in the 2000s, quote, resentment was transformed into state policy. He said it used a myth of geopolitical defeat, humiliation and pillaging of Russia by world liberalism and its henchmen, Yeltsin, Gaidar and Chubais. He continued, All of Russian society, from Putin to the last pointsman, are all equally the bearers of resentment. For Putin, the source of the non-recognition of himself and of Russia as equal and respected players on the world stage, for the pointsman, his helplessness in the face of the police, officials, courts and bandits. The resentment fantasies of the authorities at a certain moment entered into a strange resonance with the resentment fantasies of ordinary people. And a conservative orthodox publication asked in 2005, is it possible to satisfy the West? Is it possible to ever be recognized as equals? And so we wait quietly for them to let us become like they are, to let us into the club of equals, but the answer is never. This new wave of resentment has led to the adoption of two new thinkers that in some ways carry some of this historical tradition into modern conservative Russian culture. They are Ivan Ilian and Carl Schmidt. The German philosopher Karl Schmitt was a conservative and fascist thinker who was a member of the Nazi party and whose work responded to the crisis of democracy in Weimar Germany in the interwar period before the Nazis took power. Schmitt was, to put it simply, a philosopher of order. He saw liberalism in interwar Germany as leading to all the things that some Russians were seeing in the 1990s – hyperinflation, depravity, chaos. He saw liberal democracy as fundamentally flawed because it couldn't deal with the political conflict that's inherent in all politics. Under liberal democracy, no one single person or party was strong enough to prevent that conflict, and in fact, Schmidt thought that liberal rights handed the enemies of liberalism the tools that could be used to destroy liberalism itself. He said, the organisations of individual freedom were used like knives by anti-individualistic forces to cut up the leviathan and divide its flesh among themselves. Instead, he sought to homogenise the masses through a single will of a sovereign. He thought a strong leader could stand above the law in a state of exception so that disorder could be dealt with more effectively. After the chaos of the 90s, as political theorist David Lewis states, Carl Schmitt's influence became one of the most important influences in Russian conservatism in the 2000s. The other philosopher that Putin has specifically quoted is the conservative spiritual thinker Ivan Ilian, a counter-revolutionary who admired Mussolini and Hitler, and Putin even reburied him in a ceremony in 2005. Ilian's philosophy looked. Backwards to a time when God, the world, and the universe were united in one. And like Schmidt, Ilian criticised the individualistic, disjointed, and morally relative worldview of liberalism. He thought that God had made a mistake by dividing himself from the world and dividing the world and people into parts. He wrote, When God sank into empirical existence, he was deprived of his harmonious unity, logical reason and organisational purpose. He continued, the empirical fragmentation of human existence is an incorrect, a transitory and a metaphysically untrue condition of the world. Ilian saw the nation as a single harmonious organism, but importantly, he simply thought Russia was at the centre of the world, the centre of this harmony. God was Russian. Ukraine was, of course, Russian. The truth of Russia, of God, of everything, was singular and eternally in the past, and it was about reclaiming this. And a single leader must do that and lead for the purpose, for the for the glory of all Russians. Anything from outside of this single eternal truth is considered a threat. He said that Mussolini hardens himself in just and manly service. He is inspired by the spirit of totality rather than by a particular personal or party motivation. He stands alone and goes alone because he sees the future of politics and knows what must be done. The Russian filmmaker Nikita Mikhalkov introduced Ilyin to Putin. Mikhalkov himself wrote that Russia was a spiritual material unity that was at the centre of Eurasia, which was an independent cultural historic continent, organic, national unity, geopolitical and sacred centre of the world. Putin similarly has said that the great Russian mission is to unify and bind civilization. In such a state civilization, there are no national minorities, and the principle of recognition of friend or foe is defined on the basis of a common culture. Like Schmidt, Ilion argued that Porizvol, the lawlessness of the leader, standing above the people, in a state of sovereignty, in a state of exception, was better than a leader under the law. The leader was the exception to the law, and Putin has also spoken of a dictatorship of the law. This is obviously a complicated history, The linear, universalistic, rationalistic model of history assumes that chaos moves inevitably towards an ordered, enlightenment society. But I think what history actually shows is that chaos that arises from those very things sometimes is just as likely to create the conditions for this nationalistic, conservative, spiritualistic authoritarianism that we see in parts of Russian intellectual life today. And to call a spade a spade, it's fascism. Of course, much of what I've painted here is a generalisation, and it's a snapshot of a part of Russian history. There are many sides to history, Russian and everywhere else. We have to take a nuanced view on history like this. We have to understand that those things that don't fit in our liberal, rationalist, utility-maximising logical model, those romantic elements, national identity, spirit, feeling, uh, localism, language, culture, poetry, there are many elements, but they are part of us too, part of what's driven history. And a big part But they're also the things that, like bundles of sticks of latent tinder, can be twisted into authoritarianism, into expansionism, into fascism. Thank you, as always, for watching. And a huge thanks, of course, as always, to my Patreons, without which this just wouldn't be possible. So if you want to see scripts, if you want to chat in the Discord server, if you want your name in the credits, but most of all, if you just want to help support make this content, then click the link in the description below. If not, you can like, you can share, you can leave a comment, all those things that help the algorithm. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.